Good morning, you who are not sick. <laughs> and those who are. <laughs> um, we want to invite children to Children's Church, if you want to meet your teacher in the back. And uh, while they go, let's, uh, let's spend some time in prayer. Lord, you are indeed worth it all. Um, to lose everything in this life, but to gain eternity is not a loss. And uh, thank you for those good words to remind us of that truth, that you are worth our attention, that you are worth our devotion, that you are worth our love, and that we don't lose by having you. Um, Father, I want to pray for those of us who are sick, um, those who aren't be able to join us this morning. Uh, we pray that you would be with them in their illness, in their weakness, and uh, remind them that you're enough even in those cases, even in those times when we're um, unable to, to do for ourselves, Lord, that you are there to care for us and to take care of us. And that, Lord, you're, you're aware of the sickness, and there is a day coming when it will be put away, when illness will be no more. And, uh, Lord, we look forward to that, but in the meantime, we, we suffer through with what you've given us. So would you give us all faith to trust you in the hard times as well as in the good times? And, Lord, we pray for your spirit to be with us now. Uh, Lord, this is a... Uh, another time in your word, and we are inadequate for these things. But Lord, you fit us, you enable us, Lord, you remind us, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you help us to understand. Would you help us to grab this text this morning and to apply it to our own hearts? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So chapter 18. Uh, remember where we were last week? Uh, Paul was in Athens. He uh, talked with the philosophers, and then um, he left and now we're in Corinth. So before we begin on this section, I want to just kind of take care of a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, we need to talk about the, the geography, where this stuff is, a little bit about chronology, and then some um, accuracy or authenticity. Um, and then we'll get to the text, I promise. So here's our map. Um, a couple of places that are mentioned. Um, you notice where Athens is in Achaia. And then there's that really narrow isthmus between uh, the top part of Greece and the bottom part of Greece. And that's where Corinth is, is down by that, that isthmus, that little chunk of land that connects those two pieces. Um, so Paul had traveled from Athens to Corinth, about a 40-mile journey. One day's journey if you take a boat, uh, maybe two or three days walk. So it's not that far that he has to go. Um, and he goes there. We also hear about Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, this is, these are an interesting couple because they got kicked out of Rome. They're now in Corinth, but they're originally from Pontus. So do you see up there by the Black Sea, way over in the corner? That's where Pontus is. So these folks have traveled a bit. And uh, that, that's the general layout of, of the place. So let's talk a little bit about um, geography here. So Corinth, that city, was actually destroyed about 200 years before Paul got there. About 140-something BC, a Roman general came through and just laid waste, eradicated it. It was gone. But about 100 years before Paul got there, another Roman came in and said, no, we need to rebuild this. And so this city had been rebuilt. It's only maybe 100 years old. And in those days, that's a fairly new city. But Corinth was extraordinarily important. And here's why. It's on that little isthmus. So as you're traveling from, uh, from uh, the, the southern port portion of uh, Greece to the northern, you go over that. So it's got a huge north-south road that runs through there. And it's pretty narrow. Corinth is the big city there. That's where people went. So that was why it was important north-south. 
What was important for the east-west portion of it was, apparently it was safer if you're sailing in the Aegean Sea and you need to get to the Iotian or the Adriatic, apparently it was safer to pull up to that little isthmus there, unload your goods, ship them across land, put them on another boat on the other side in the Iotian Sea, and then sail them out because heading out into the Mediterranean could be dangerous. So what you get in Corinth is you get this crossroads. North-south as land travelers are going, east-west as ships are going back and forth. So just in its hundred years, Corinth had grown and become extraordinarily important, really rich, a vibrant city, really important place because of those crossroads, because there was so much traffic through there. Now, it was also a fairly religious city. There was a large temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the, the Roman version of the Greek god uh, Venus, unless I got those backwards. They're the same person. Let's put it that way. Aphrodite and Venus, the goddess of love. So... What do you think that means for that city? There, there was a rumor that at one time there were 10,000 temple prostitutes working that temple. Now, put that on there. Now add this vagrant um, um, people that are migrating in and out of there, especially sailors. And, you know, sailors, I, I'm Air Force, I confess. No diss to any of my sailor friends, but sailors have a reputation. So you throw that into the mix, and Corinth was the Las Vegas of its day. It was Sin City. As a matter of fact, if somebody said, wow, you are positively Corinthian, that was not a compliment. They meant you really are a pervert. I mean, it was, it was that bad. So this is the city to which Paul goes. It was an important city because it was such a great crossroads, but it was also a huge challenge. So that's Corinth. That's our, our geography lesson that we get here. Chronology. Now, you remember when Aaron read this, we hit two different events that are mentioned in this, and they can help us pinpoint when Paul was in Corinth down to almost a year. The first is that uh, the emperor had kicked the Jews out of Rome. That was at the beginning. Uh, Claudius had thrown the Jews out of Rome. Um, this eviction thing happened not regularly, but, but it happened a number of times. Um, Judaism was a recognized... Roman religion. You could be a Jew and it would be legal, but they got a little uppity sometimes in Rome and the, Romans, uh, the, the Roman emperor didn't like that and so he'd kick them out. So we know exactly when, um, when um, uh, what's the emperor's name? Claudius. I kept thinking Gaius and I knew that wasn't it. When Claudius kicked him out, we know pretty close it was probably around 49 AD. So that's when that happened. So this event has to be sometime after 49 AD. So that's the first little chronology marker we get. The second one comes at the end of the section. Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia. Now, in just you know, it's just coincidence. Gallio was the proconsul in Achaia for one year. What had happened was the uh, the, the the area of uh, Achaia was set up as a, a, a consulate there would be a, a, a temporary leader installed until they got a, a full-time council. And so Gallio was called to do that. He was there from 51 to 52, and that's it. One year, and he was out. One and a half years, something like that. So if Paul is hauled behind, before Gallio in Corinth, then it must be in that time period, and that fits well with the Jews being kicked out a few years before. 
kicked out of Rome, that they would run into him there. So what we get there is we get a really accurate time. This must have been right around 50 AD, 50, 51, somewhere around there, 52 at the, at the latest. So isn't it nice how, that, how we get the Bible says something, and then we got this big history lesson to put it all together. Um, that's nice. What I want to really be careful of, and I, I had to check myself this week when I was studying this, because there's more historical information that's going to come in. Um, is be wary of extra biblical historical data changing how you read your Bible. Let me say it again, extra biblical, in other words, history data that's not stored in, that's not contained in the text, changing how you read the text. Because history is a science. Is science ever settled? You will hear people say the science is settled. If the science is settled, it's not science. Science is always self-checking. It's going back. It's verifying. It's wrestling through. It's saying, did we get this right? Did we not get this right? How do we get it better? Archaeology, history is the same kind of thing. We, we find more information, and suddenly we think something is different. So if it changes how you read the Bible, you may not have it right. And what happens if next week we find something that contradicts that bit of history that you had or, or fine-tunes it or something? So if there's history that's important to this, we will be told in the text. Gallo was, Gallio was the, uh, the proconsul of Achaia. That's historical, that's reliable, that's in the Bible. When he was there, that's based on one or two writings. So don't let historical data affect how you read the, the scriptures. Let the scriptures say what they're going to say. If the historical context is necessary, God will give that to you. But... Having said that, it really is nice when it comes in and supports what we, what we read, isn't it? It has a position, it just hasn't got the lead position. It's got a supporting position. So that helps us there. So here's the last point I want to bring up, based on what I just said, is the accuracy of this. Paul wrote this, and he told us a story, and as we go back and we look through the journals of time, we find out, you know what? What he said is accurate. This actually happened at this time. Gallio was actually the proconsul in Achaia. It really happened. And so what we wind up doing is we look at this and we go, you know, Luke's a reliable source in this. So when Luke says that Paul traveled from Athens to Corinth, we can say, you know, there's every good reason to believe that that's accurate, that that actually happened. Even though we don't have a hotel receipt at Corinth Hotel with Paul's name on it, we can say, you know what, uh, uh, somebody who understood what was going on accurately told us, told us that. That's part of what faith is, is relying on reliable witnesses, hearing what a reliable witness says, and saying, yeah, I believe that. I think this is true. And then sometimes the facts come in and, and help that out. So what we get here is we get a picture of Luke's writing that says he's accurate. He's not making this up. He's not speaking of strange things going on. So if Luke is accurately reporting what's going on in Acts 18 with these historical deals, details, then maybe he's accurate about what Paul did. Paul in 51 AD is talking about Jesus' resurrection. Now, skeptics who don't like the idea that Jesus rose from the dead want this to be written in 200 or so. There was no witnesses. But if this is accurate then Paul himself is walking around talking about something that happened about 20 years ago. So what happened 20 years ago? 1999, everybody was freaking out because of the Y2K bug. 
Do we have a credible witness in this, in this room right now who could say, yeah, we, I was around when the Y2K bug was a big thing? I did, I did some work on it in the Air Force. I mean, I studied that stuff. I was trying to figure out if we were going to have computers shut off for no good reason. That was only 20 years ago. And we can go through and talk to people and say, yeah, Y2K, I remember that. President Bill Clinton was acquitted of an, in an impeachment hearing. Anybody remember Clinton being, being put on trial for impeachment? Yeah, we were here. We, we know people who are around them. We heard that. And then um, the tragic one is 20 years ago, the Columbine school shooting happened. And everybody remembers that. That was such a tragedy. Would anybody come by today and walk in here and say, Columbine never happened? That never occurred. That was, that's just something that your, your friends are making up and telling you. So when Paul says Jesus Christ rose from the dead 20 years ago, he's not talking about ancient history. For Paul, it's immediate. It's now. It happened recently. And, and you can check this. This is something that, that's verifiable. People have heard about this. As a matter of fact, at the end of the book of Acts, I peeked ahead, by the way. I hope that's okay. Paul's put on trial. He's hauled up before Herod. And when he's given his defense to Herod, he says, Herod, you know these things. You're familiar with the, the customs of the, the, the Jews. You're half Jew anyway. And so you know what happened to Judea, how Jesus was, was persecuted, how he was arrested, how he's executed. And I'm here to tell you, he rose from the dead. So he's talking to somebody who's familiar with those events. 20 years. So when we look at what's going on here, we can at least say the historical evidence is reliable. Now, there's more things that are said here than just history. And we'll have to analyze those a little bit differently. But at least on the onset, we can say that the text that we're reading is reliable. It's told in a way that we can actually trust. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what actually is written. So Paul leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth and it says that he found a, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius commanded the Jews to leave Rome. We covered the history of that. Look at Aquila and Priscilla, two friends of Paul. They will come up repeatedly throughout the New Testament. They show up quite often. Um, they were co-laborers with Paul. They worked with him often. Um, one of the questions that comes up, and I, it's kind of a tangent, but we got to deal with it, is Priscilla. Because in other places, outside of the book of Acts, Priscilla is called Prisca. So which is it? The answer here is yes, both. Priscilla is what's called the diminutive of Prisca. So Prisca is her name, and people call her, people who know her call her Priscilla. It's like somebody that you know, their, their, their name is Rebecca, but everybody calls them Becky. It's a diminutive. It's not an insult. It's not, you know, oh, little thing. It's just a, a, a smaller or a more familiar way of saying the name. So that's what's going on. Luke addresses her in Acts as Priscilla. But outside that, as she's talked to the rest of the church, she's introduced by her formal name, Pris Prisca. The other thing about Aquila and Priscilla is who came first in this one? Aquila. The husband came first in this one. Almost every place else in the New Testament, it's Priscilla first and then Aquila. What's up with that? Um, what's up with that is her name, it's possible that her name indicates that she was a freed slave and that a noble woman had freed her because the name Pris Prisca was a pretty high uppity name. And so that's one theory is that she had great social standing. 
Um, that, that's possible. We don't know. It's not explained in the text. It might be that she is the more vocal person, that she's the more outgoing, the more forceful personality. And so think about couples in the church and go through the names and, and, and ask yourself, which name comes first when you mention this couple? And you'll notice that it goes back and forth, and it's just who, who you think of first and the, the two of them. And it doesn't mean anything. So there you go. I have just talked for about three minutes on the fact that her name doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's not terribly important. But some people want to make something out of it. Um, so that's, that's Priscilla and Aquila. Now what's happened is they've left. They've been kicked out of Rome. They've wound up in Corinth. And what they're doing is they're tent makers. That's how they make their living is they make tents. Um, and so Paul joins them because that's his trade. So here's what's going on is rabbis were supposed to have a trade. They didn't come and just learn theology. They should learn a trade as well. And the, um, the early writings in, or the first century writings in Judaism kind of condemn rabbis who just won't work. And so Paul has earned this living. As he's learning at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, he's also learning how to make tents. And so that's what he does. Now he gets to Corinth and he works. This is the first time we've heard that Paul got an outside job. Other places, all we've heard is he's come in, he's preached the gospel, and then he moved on. So um, how does this fit with what we know about Paul? Well, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions something along these lines. Listen to what he says. This is beginning in verse 13. He says, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Apparently, the Corinthians felt like Paul was slighting them. So he says, for what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? The word burden comes up a lot. And what he's talking about, I wasn't a financial weight on you. Forgive me this wrong. <laughs> I should have taken your money, I guess. I mean, forgive me for not being a burden. Um, a little sarcasm. He says, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not ob obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So you can see burden must be a financial issue. So what he's saying is, look, I've come to you, and I have never been a financial burden on you. Doesn't that fit with what Lucas told us? He was a tent maker. He was making tents. He was working with people who made tents. He didn't want to burden the Corinthians. And if I can just go on a little tangent here for a second, that was startling. Because what we'll hear in the rest of the Corinthian epistles is they're pretty well off. <laughs> Corinth was a big deal, right? There's a lot of money flowing through there. There was a lot of money in that place. And they were really upset that, well, you know, Paul's just after our cash. And yet what we'll find out later is um, Timothy and Silas come from Macedonia and they bring money to him. The Macedonians who spent, sent money to you. And the Macedonians were not well off. And so Paul is saying, look, you guys, don't get so wrapped up about money. These poor people are supporting me, and I'm not a burden to you. Um, that's a real good warning because, newsflash, Americans are pretty rich. And we also get really finicky about our money. We get really uppity about it. When I went to China one time, I went to a, a government official. He was a retired government official's house for dinner. And we sat down, and he, he looked at me. He said, so how much money do you make? And, you know, in America, it'd be, oh, you can't ask me that. But I recognized the context, and I just told him. And he was, oh, you make three times as much as I do. And so he must have, you know, you could hear the, the cash register bell going in his head. This guy's rich. I said, um, how much did you pay for those pants? And he said, oh, $3. I said, these are 30 Wow. 
wow. So, so yeah, I make three times as much, and I pay ten times as much. And he, that kind of calmed him down. So the, the Corinthians are kind of like that. They're really, it sounds like they're being very defensive about their money. And so Paul refuses to take money from them. He says, I am not going to take any of the money from you. What he will tell them is, save up money, set it aside, and when I go to Jerusalem, I will take your money to Jerusalem and give it to the saints there. But I don't want to be accused of going after you for just your cash. So that's what he does. That's why I think it's important Paul brings up that, or Luke brings up that Paul was a tent maker and he earned a living while he was there. So what he did is he's, he's working, but he also goes in and does what he always does, reasons in the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue and he's telling people, I, you know the scriptures, you know the prophecies, Jesus is the Christ. And that's what he does. That's how he works. Is he's, he's trying to get these folks to understand who Jesus is. So what happens next is Paul and Timothy, or uh, Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia. And it says that Paul was occupied with the word. So apparently he had begun to slack off on the tent making business because Silas and Timothy brought him some money. And this is from 2 Corinthians also, chapter 11. Paul says, and when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So Paul is, is again, we see Timothy and Silas show up. They bring an offering from Macedonia. And Paul says, I'm not going to take anything from the Corinthians. I don't want to be a burden to them. So one of the things about this section that we're going through is it's framed by three pronouncements, three speeches, if you will. The first one is Paul's speech. Paul makes a pronouncement. The second one is Jesus. Jesus makes a pronouncement. And then the third one is Gallio, who makes a pronouncement. Of the three, which is the most important? When God shows up in the text and speaks, that's what the text is about. Okay? So when we're looking at these, what Paul says is very interesting. What Gallio says is very interesting. What Jesus says is the most important thing. So that's how I'm going to approach this, is I'm, I'm looking to what Jesus says first and saying, how does that dictate everything else here? When, when God shows up, that's the important part. So here's what's going on with Paul. Paul makes his pronouncement. As he's speaking in the synagogue, they're resisting him. They're fighting. They didn't want to believe. And so Paul says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now I will go on to the Gentiles. So he goes into the synagogue, he reasons with them, he's showing them from the scripture. They don't want to believe, and he, he announces, your blood be on your own head. I'm innocent. And then he says he's going to turn to the Gentiles. He's done that before. He has announced, I'm turning now to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles rejoice. So when he says this here, why does he say, you blood, your blood be on your own head? Well, there's precedent for this. This has happened before, and... Um, this is one of those things about the hardened Jews who won't listen. One of the things Jesus said about them is, you're just like your fathers. Your fathers buried, killed the prophets, and then you come and bury them, and, and you just show that you agree with them. And they were offended because we're nothing like our fathers. Why, if we had been around, we would have never killed the prophets. Really? You're about to kill the Son of God. So one of the themes that comes through the New Testament is you hardened Jews are just like your fathers before you. And what he means is not their, their physical fathers. He's talking about the people in Israel who worshipped false gods, Ahab, all of those horrible kings who did those horrible things. Jesus looks and he goes, you haven't changed a lick. You're exactly the same. 
And so when, when Paul comes in and he announces to them who the Christ is and they resist, what he's saying when he tells them, your blood be on your own head, I'm innocent, what he's saying is the same thing. You're just like your fathers. Here's what I mean. This sounds extremely familiar if you read through the prophets. Ezekiel, especially. We could pick any number of them, but I, I immediately went to Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 3, listen to this. This is what happens. And he said to me, that's the Lord said to, to Ezekiel, and he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you can't understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I make your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I will make your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. So this is the word to Ezekiel, to the nation, how hard-hearted they are. They won't listen to God. Now listen to what he says next. This is a little further down in, in chapter 3. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak, uh, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood will be on your head, on your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he will surely die for his iniquity, but you will be delivered your soul. So what God told Ezekiel is, I'm going to tell you things, and you're going to go to the wicked, and you're going to tell them, thus says the Lord. And if they listen, then they're saved. If they continue in their wickedness and they refuse to listen, you're innocent. You have done your part. Your role, Ezekiel, is not to convert these people. Your role, Ezekiel, is to come and to tell them the truth. That's how you keep your hands pure. That's how you keep blood off your hands is you go and you faithfully tell them the truth. But, Ezekiel, if I tell you to go tell these people a hard thing and you refuse, you won't talk to them, you're guilty of their blood because I sent you to save them and, they would, and, and you rejected me, they didn't. So Paul is saying the exact same thing, isn't he? He's coming to the Corinthians and he's saying, look, I'm here to tell you about who, who the Messiah is. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So when they refuse, when they reject, when they say, I don't want anything to do with that, he says, then your blood is on your own head. I'm clean. I have done my job. I have fulfilled my role as a prophet, and I have done what I've been called to do. That's your decision. And so then I think it's kind of neat that Ezekiel talks about people with a hard language and in a different tongue. And God says, look, if I sent you to them, they'd believe. And what Paul looks at and goes, okay, I'm done with you. I'm going to the, the Greeks. He's saying, Lord, they would believe, and I'm going to go try that. I'm going to go see and watch what happens. They do believe. It's amazing. So this is really right in line with what's going on. So Paul is warning them, if you've heard the gospel, if you refuse the gospel, your blood is on your own head. You have no argument at this point before God. You can't say, oh, I never heard. I didn't know. 
All you can say is, I heard, but I didn't believe. I didn't buy a word of it. And that's no excuse. That's a bad thing. So that's what Paul says. That's his, his proclamation. Now let's look at the next section. This is Jesus' proclamation. So when Paul is done with the synagogue, verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was right next door to the synagogue. The, the word for next door is not just, you know, like the nice plot of land and next door. They, he buttressed the synagogue. His house was built right next to it. So Paul goes to him. He's a God-fearer. In other words, this is a man who went to synagogue but was a Greek. He was, he was a respecter of, of the, uh, the Jewish religion. And so Paul goes, hey, you know, you can just watch him walk out the front door, turn, and walk right into the next door. Hi, I'm here. He goes to Titus's house right next door to the synagogue. He's not running from the Jews. He's not afraid of them. He's right next door to them. So he goes there. And he's going to stay with this man. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Guess what? He's no longer the ruler of the synagogue at this point. We'll hear about another one at the end. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul is, is Paul having a successful ministry in Corinth? Well, it didn't do too well in the synagogue. But after he left... Now, all of a sudden, he's having a pretty successful ministry. It goes on to say that um, many were believed and were baptized. Uh, apparently, not many by Paul. I don't know if you remember this from 1 Corinthians. At the very beginning, one of the problems that Paul is addressing with the Corinthians is they're divided. I'm, uh, I follow Apollo. I follow Paul. And then the most sanctimonious of them say, ha, oh, I follow Christ. Aren't I great? What Paul says is, look, Jesus isn't divided. You're all following him. And so here's his argument in verse uh, 13 of chapter 1. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or are you baptized in the name of Paul? Don't be ridiculous. He says, I thank God I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. That's, I'm glad I didn't baptize you. Because then you'd have something to brag about, so that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. And then all of a sudden, parenthetically, oh yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I did anybody else. <laughs> the baptism wasn't the big point. Jesus was the big point. And so he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, like the, lest the cross of the uh, Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul has gone to the Corinthians, he's preached them, and he's like, I'm not trying to be fancy. I preach this simple message, Jesus is the Christ. And so this baptism, when it talks about these people being baptized, um, they really didn't get baptized by Paul. It was the whole crew, it was the whole group that was working with him. They did the baptisms, and Paul delights that. He's like, I don't want you to think you're mine, you're not mine. You're not Paulians, you're Christians. You're assigned to Christ. My job is just to usher you in there. So that's the, the, the report of his ministry. The next, very next thing that's said is Jesus speaks. And so when Jesus speaks, he says, do not, in, a, in a vision of the night, he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. But Paul just, we just heard about Paul's success. Many believed, many were baptized. Why does Jesus show up and say, don't be afraid? Well, don't go too far with this because we don't know why. Was Paul afraid? 
Maybe he was afraid of the vision and not necessarily his ministry. It doesn't say. What it does say is, is number one, Jesus tells him, don't be afraid. You're hitting resistance. When you got to the synagogue, there was a lot of resistance. Remember what Corinth was, Sin City. It was, it was not just filled with idols. It was filled with temple prostitutes and all sorts of filthy stuff. We went to see, uh, to the Reagan Library this week, and they had a section on Pompeii. The new traveling uh, show was on Pompeii. And kind of hidden back in one little corner was the frescoes from certain houses of ill repute that were in, in Pompeii. And that was just a little sample. Apparently, this was a fairly predominant thing in Pompeii as these houses of ill repute. Um, there was probably a lot of that going on in Corinth. And so when Jesus comes, he says, don't be afraid, but keep speaking. So here's the thing. In the history of someone saying to you, don't be afraid, has it ever worked? If, if, when you were a little kid and you were sure there was a monster under your bed and your, your dad appeared at your door and said, don't be afraid, did you immediately go, click, okay, I'm good. Night. The history of saying, don't be afraid, it hardly ever works. For someone to tell you, don't be afraid, and you to stop being afraid, you, number one, have to trust them. You know, the bad guys in the movies, right, they come up, don't be afraid, and then you get scared because you know they're going to pull something. But if you trust the person, they say, don't be afraid, you say, okay, I can trust this individual. Second, to not be afraid, you have, that person has to have the authority and the power to deal with whatever it is scaring you. So if you're in a rowboat in the middle of a raging river that's heading towards a huge waterfall and the person in the boat next to you looks, looks over at you, grabs your hand and says, don't be afraid. Is that going to help? <laughs> Dude, we're heading over a waterfall. You're, you're, you're telling me not to be afraid is not helping. What's coming is terrifying. You don't have the authority or the power to deal with it. When Jesus comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid, does Jesus have the authority to deal with whatever that problem is. Stephen saw Jesus ascended, standing at the right hand of power in heaven, ruling the authority over all of creation. Does he have the authority? Yes. Can he be trusted? Jesus has shown over and over again he can be trusted. And does he have the power? He has the power. So when he comes and he appears to Paul and he says, don't be afraid, Paul has every reason to stop being afraid at that point. The thing, that, the thing that opposes me, something greater than that showed up and said, I got this. Don't worry about it. So first of all, Jesus says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. Have you ever needed to hear that word? Go on speaking and don't be silent. You can say this. I am standing behind you. I am telling you not to be afraid. I am with you in this. Keep on speaking and don't be silent. Share the message I've given you. Remember what he told Ezekiel? Your responsibility, Ezekiel, is not to convert the nation of Israel. Ezekiel, your job, your role, what you are called to do is be faithful with the message and tell them what I've told you to tell them. I'll take care of the rest. Don't be afraid. So first of all, don't be afraid. Second of all, keep speaking and don't be silent. Why? Based on what? What are the grounds for this? I am with you. Is that only Paul? That doesn't apply for us, surely. Yeah, come on. You guys know what's on the wall out there? Jesus said, go make disciples. I am with you until the end of the age. 
This person who has the authority, who has the power, who we can trust, is with us until the very end of the age. It doesn't get any better. Why should I not be afraid? Because I'm with you. And then he says, for I have many people in the city. Now, does that mean, don't be afraid, because I got a lot of troops here, and if they start causing trouble, I'll just wrestle my troops up, and they'll go beat everybody up. There's a story about El Chapo. You remember El Chapo, the big drug kingpin from um, Mexico? Uh, I think it was the first time he went to jail, or the second time. His wife was, one of his wives, he's got 13 kids, by the way, came here to Lancaster to have her baby. And the police went to a lot of the housing agencies and said, look, you got to know what's going on. There's, there's, you know, this is what's happening. Is El Chapo is sending his wife here, and so there may be an influx of Mexicans come in to do this. And, and the question was, why on earth would El Chapo send his wife to Lancaster? If he could send her to California or America, there are surely better hospitals somewhere. And the answer was, he has a lot of people in this city. So he knew his baby and his wife would be safe because he's got a lot of people in the city. Is that what Jesus is saying? You don't have to be afraid. I got a lot of thugs in the city. We'll take care of anything that comes up. That is absolutely not what's saying, what's being said here, because the way the sentence is phrased, notice what it says. It says, for. Um, he says, fear not, but keep speaking for or because. The word could be translated because. Fear not and speak because I am with you. The next one is because I have many people here. So it's not, don't be afraid because I have many people. It's don't be afraid, speak, I have many people here. The speaking is what's important. There are two commands in that sentence, to uh, fear not and to speak. The rest of it hang off of that. So why is he speaking? Because Jesus has many people in that city. There are many people in the city of Corinth who need to hear the message of who Jesus is. They need to come to understand who Jesus is, what he's done. They need to hear that message, and they need to trust in him. That's why you are not afraid. That's why you keep speaking. So that's what he means. He's not saying, I got thugs. He's saying, I have people who need to hear about me. That's, that fits with how John describes his, or in the Gospel of John, how, how Jesus describes his mission. The sheep of my fold will hear my voice, and they will come out to me. I have sheep of another fold who need to hear my voice, too. So when Jesus says, I have people in this city, it doesn't mean that there's a whole bunch of Christians there. It means there's a whole bunch of people who need to become Christians, who need to hear that message. And when they hear that message, they will come to him because they're his. So that's the authoritative statement of Jesus. Do you hear the audacity of what he's saying? I have the power to ensure no one will harm you. I'm, I'm not just wishfully thinking, oh, it's not going to happen. Don't worry about it. Jesus is saying, you keep speaking because no one will harm you. I will make sure of it. I am with you. It won't happen. So that's another bold statement that, that Luke makes. Let's see, does that hold? Is the reason to believe that G what Jesus said is true? Does it line up? How does that measure? So to get there, we have to get to the next section. We have to, um, oh, it, it, the way it ends, by the way, is he says, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word to, of God to them. So did Luke obey, or did Paul obey Jesus? Yes, he did. He spent a year and a half there continuing to preach and teach. 
So now let's test Jesus' message. Jesus' promise was, no one will harm you. What happens next? The last portion is Gallio's uh, pronouncement, and that's going to show us what these other two pronouncements were all about. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a unified attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. A unified, they came together and they decided they were going to attack Paul. How are we going to attack him? We're going to take him, we're going to haul him up before the judge, and we're going to accuse him before the judge, and that will take care of it. That will explain what's going on. So they make a unified attack against him. They bring him to the tribunal. That was an elevated chair in the middle of the market. We heard about that before. And Gallio is sitting on this chair to hear the cases. That was his role as proconsul, as he would be the judge. So they bring him in and they say, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Which law? Jewish law, probably because it's Jews, but it could also be Roman law. Because, hey, Caesar's God. You got to worship him. And if this Paul guy is saying that Jesus is God and you shouldn't worship anybody else, that's contrary to your law, it's contrary to our law, it's contrary to law. So you got to do something with him. <laughs> I love this. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, so he's standing before Gallio, the, the Jews are making these accusation, accusations, and you see Paul go, and he cuts him off. Not a word. Stop. Gallio says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. I have judicial authority over these things. But since it's a matter of, or since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to, judge, uh, to be a judge of these things. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, if I'm reading this correctly, the Jews are saying, Paul is teaching a, a religion that is contrary to the, your laws and to our laws. He's not a Jew. He's, he's a third religion. And, and Gallio, it's not an authorized religion, and you need to deal with it. Gallio says, look, I'm not going to get involved in that. My, my job is not to parse out religions and say this is part of that, or this isn't part of that, or it's different. Than, isn't, you guys deal with that. I'm here to keep the peace. So that's what I'm going to do. The reason I say this is because something I didn't tell you about the decree to kick the Jews out of Rome is when Claudius kicked him out, one of the commentators from that time says the reason that they were thrown out is because they were causing civil unrest at the incitement of the Crestus. And so when you hear the word Crestus, it's like that's not quite the Christ, but it's close. And so one of the theories is they kicked the Jews out because they saw Christians and Jews at this point as one religion. And the word Christus is either A, a misspelling, or a Latin corruption of the word Christ. And so it could be that, that the reason Aquila and Priscilla were there is because they got thrown out of Rome because Christians were causing a ruckus. The Jews were getting mad at the Christians for talking about this Christ. And so the Roman law said, just get them out, out of the city. Go find someplace else. So if that's what's going on, and again, don't change your reading based on history because history can change, but if that's what's going on, that what Gallio is saying is, I'm not going to decide whether they're part of your religion or not. That's for you guys to figure out. If they're doing something wrong, if they're causing some civil unrest, I'll deal with it. Otherwise, I won't touch it. Go away. I'm not going to, I'm not going to split your, your religion for you. It's your guys' job. 
One of the things about, we know a lot about Gallio. There's a lot written about him. And, and I'm not going to go into all his history. Save to say, one of his brothers wrote of him and called him Gallio the Gentle. He was the kind of person, apparently, that everybody loved. He was just a nice guy. Um, he was an orphan. He was adopted. He was you know, adopted into a nice family. And he was just one of those people that you like to be around, apparently. That's what he sounds like. And so when he looks at this, it's not a personality play for him. It's not, it's my power, my authority here. He is a nice guy. He's like, look, I got a role to do. I, gotta, I don't want to be here. I'm only going to be here for a year until we get somebody else in. I'm not going to decide this. You guys take care of it. So he could have just said, yeah, execute them all. Be done with it. Okay, next. Um, but he doesn't want to. He's a nice guy. He just lets them go. You guys go take care of that. And so he drives them out of the tribunal. He says, you're next. Get them out. Shoo. Be gone. So what happens? Do the Jews just go home and go, darn, that didn't work? The bad guy in the story never gives up like that. Listen to the last part. They seize Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So Crispus apparently is out. Sosthenes is in. What we're going to guess is Sosthenes probably is back out because we hear about him later in the New Testament. He's a believer. Now, that's a fairly common name. It may not be the same guy, but I find it kind of funny that the first ruler of the, the synagogue becomes a Christian, and maybe the second one, too. So they grab Sosthenes, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. The Jews take matters into their own hands. Now, you've got to understand how risky this was. The primary thing that Rome wanted was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And if you caused any kind of a ruckus, you could be anything from beaten to thrown in jail to just executed on the spot. It depended on how the, the magistrate felt at the time. But it says Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, does that mean he's standing on, he's sitting on his judgment seat and down in front of him there's a skirmish where a guy's getting beaten with sticks and he's going, oh, no, don't see it. Or is he saying, look, I'm not going to argue your case. I pay no attention to your arguments. That's probably what it means is, is not he, he pretended like they weren't there, but he was saying, I'm not going to deal with it. So that's, that's the story that's going on there. What does this have to do with Jesus' proclamation? Jesus said, Paul, you keep speaking. No one will harm you. He said that authoritatively. He didn't guess. He said, I will make sure this happens. And what happened when he got hauled before the council? Does he get to speak? Jesus told him, you keep talking. And when he, he's like, okay, I'm going to talk. And Jesus cuts him off, and Gallio shoes him out of there. You go away. Go take care of it yourselves. Get out of here. Did anybody harm him? Who did they drag before the council and beat? It wasn't Paul. It was Sosthenes. So just like I said at the beginning, we have pretty good reasons to believe that the book of Acts is historically accurate in the, the historical events it tells. We also have pretty good reason to believe that when Jesus pronounces, you won't be harmed, you keep preaching, I have many people in this city, we can step back and look, you know, we have good reason to believe Jesus' authority on this. Look what happened. Paul was not harmed. Was he harmed when he was in um, uh, Lystra and Derby? Yeah, they stoned him, left him for dead. But here, he's not harmed. Because Jesus said, don't be afraid. I've got this. This one, you're not going to get harmed on. I'm going to take care of this. And then he does. He did. He actually did what he said he was going to do. Jesus, what this is telling us is we have good reason to believe that Jesus has the authority 
when he says something to carry through on it, that his, his, his uh, words are tr worthy of our trust, that we can actually put hope in them, because he has demonstrated, I will do this. I'm going to do this, and then he turns around and do it. This is a good example. He's, he promised Paul nobody would hurt you. Nobody hurt him. What's Paul's, hermit, or, uh, Paul's apologetic on this? Jesus said, they're going to kill me, and in three days I'll rise again. That is a pretty big promise. Anybody know anybody who, said, who told you they were going to come back from the dead and actually did? It doesn't happen. So when Jesus says, they're going to persecute me, they're going to execute me, they're going to put me in a tomb, and I'm going to rise three days later, and it happens, these are those things where you go, let's, look at the, let's just take a look at the, the, the historical record here. Let's take a look at the facts and see, is this trustworthy? Is this reliable? Can I base my hope in this? Well, if we can put our trust in Luke being an accurate historian, from what we see from Jesus, we can put our trust in Jesus as an accurate Savior, as an accurate Messiah, Messiah meaning King, because what he promised Luke or promised uh, um, Paul actually came through. It actually happened. So that historical uh, verity, um, uh, the truthfulness of, of Luke's writings shows that the word of Jesus is just as trustworthy. Paul demonstrates it himself. So when he tells us, go into all nations and make disciples, and at the end he promises, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Is that a trustworthy statement? Is that a reliable thing you can put your hope in? Is that something you can trust? Well, it's, it comes down to, at its root, it comes down to a matter of faith. Will you believe it? The question is, do you have a reason to trust that? Well, I would say, yeah, we, I think we've got some pretty good reasons here. There's, there's reasonable evidence here to say, yeah, I should trust in Jesus. I should put my hope in him, my faith in him. He has shown himself to be faithful over and over and over again. So right in the middle of this, what we get is Jesus' authority in the center of Sin City. The unrighteousness of Corinth did not stop him. He had people there. He sent Paul to Sin City, the, this, this cesspool in the Roman Empire. Actually, they thought it was all beautiful, this crown jewel, but it was morally bankrupt place. He sends Paul there because he says, I have people in this city. Jesus' authority is not tested. It's not even questioned by Gallio. He will do as Jesus said he would do. His authority, his righteousness is not diminished by the corruptness of Corinth. He has many people in this city. And so Paul, don't be afraid. You tell them. It's, it's a, a great testimony to what Jesus can do. And, and we don't have to worry about is our nation corrupt? Is our nation's morals falling down? Does that stop the gospel at all? Jesus has many people in this nation. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. No one will harm you. That's the good news. That's the hope that we have, and that's the, the demonstration of what's gone on here. So when you get, as you're reading through the Bible this year, when you get to the Corinthian epistles, have some of this in the back of your mind and go, no wonder those people were so screwed up. <laughs> no wonder they had such warped morals and why Paul had to really yell at them so bad is that the environment they found themselves in was twisted. 
And so they had a lot of unlearning and relearning to do. I mean, it was just a, a messed up place. And you're trying to make disciples there. It may, for me, it made Corinthians just kind of come to life and go, oh, yeah. No wonder they had so many problems. The worst one, do you remember the worst one that Paul brought up? He says, it's not even named amongst the Gentiles. A man has his father's wife, and you people applaud it. That's the, that's the corrupt nature of, of Corinth. That's, that's something that was so bad even the Corinthians wouldn't do it. Remember what I said earlier about you're perfectly Corinthian? What a Corinthian thing to do. And the church is going, yay. And the society is going, that's sick, man. Somebody from Vegas is saying, that's sick. That's, that's pretty perverse. So you can see the work that Paul had to do. And is Jesus frustrated by any of that? Is his, is his purpose in saving people at all diminished by any of that? No, that's the point is we need to be saved from that kind of junk. We need to be saved from that kind of garbage. We need to be turned. Our heads are twisted. We need to be untwisted and brought back. So it is hard work. It's not easy work, but don't be afraid. I'm with you. And that's the hope we have. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are a people of unclean lips, and we live in a nation of people of unclean lips. Lord, um, Ezekiel faced a, a stiff-necked, hard-headed people. And Lord, our nation is becoming increasingly stiff-necked and hard-headed. They're giving Israel a run for their money. But Lord, in the midst of that, we have this example of Paul going into Corinth and preaching about you. And because of your power, because of your authority, because of your rule, he wasn't frustrated. Lord, would you do the same for your church in America? Would you help us to engage with those around us trusting that you have many people left to call to yourself. And Lord, fit us for the, the opposition, for the resistance, and help us, Lord, to keep our hands free of blood. Help us to be faithful. And Lord, in the end, help us to trust you. You will call to yourself those who you will call to yourself. And Lord, that gives us tremendous hope because no matter how hard the head is, no matter how stiff the neck is, you can overcome you turned a valley of dry bones into an standing army. You turned a rock hard heart into a heart of flesh. Lord, you can do it here too. And that's why we pray. That's how we hope. That's what we want you to do is, Lord, untwist our hearts. Untwist the hearts of our neighbors and friends. Draw many to yourself, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.